Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, pop culture, tech, media, because in the end, everything's an ad for something else. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And uh, with me, as always, is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, thank you for joining us. Thanks, David. And uh, this week, welcoming back uh, Christina Malos, staff writer and producer on the podcast. How are you, Christina? I'm doing just dandy <laughs> I, I i have a, a funny story for you my wife the other day said that she likes when you're on because you keep it real so oh no <laughs> no one keeps it more real than christina thank you thank you for keeping it real christina i, I appreciate that also keeping it real is christine berkner a staff writer covering brands and agencies and marketing thank you for joining us christine Sure. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, do political ads matter more than Trump probably thought they did? Uh, We've got some interesting numbers coming out of the election, and they're finally starting to spend money, which is good news for some folks. Uh, Also, one of the top agencies in the world is restructuring its leadership. We're going to talk about what that means uh, and kind of what that portends for their future. And on the eve of the ANA Masters of Marketing Conference, we're going to talk about the big trends and the players in retail and branding. So I'm going to dive right in with some news. The Trump and Clinton campaigns are kind of finally ramping up their advertising uh, and digital efforts. Uh, Mostly when I say finally, really referring to Trump because for quite a while now, he's uh, been saying that advertising is not a big deal. He's been bragging about how little he's been spending compared to Clinton. And unfortunately for him, now that he is polling incredibly low, uh, he seems to be rethinking that position. Uh, So just to give you some context, around the end of September, Trump had only spent about $22 million on TV and radio compared to $124 million being spent by the Clinton campaign. So he's being outspent by $100 million. He announced a plan to spend uh, about $100 million on TV and $40 million on digital uh, recently, um, between between then and Election Day. And... He's kind of getting punished for this uh, by the marketplace. The Wall Street Journal says that he's really having to pay a premium for coming in so late. Uh, You know, obviously, like anything, the earlier you buy it, the better. Uh, So he is paying quite a bit more. So a 30-second spot in Florida that cost uh, the Clinton campaign, according to the Wall Street Journal, that cost uh, her campaign $770 to run 30 seconds is costing him more than $1,000. So if you multiply that by the kind of volume we're talking about, it's not a small amount of money. 
Uh, all told, the election ad spending this cycle is down a lot, uh, which is bad, bad news for these uh, TV networks and who had, you know, and other media outlets that had really been banking on this money. Uh, they were projected to have spent $3.3 billion by this point. It's only about $2.8 billion, so that's $500 million uh, shortfall. And Trump is really just now launching into Wisconsin, Virginia, uh, kind of reshuffling some of his ad buys in other states. And not really getting any support from the the RNC, the Republican National Committee. They they've given him zero dollars uh, so far, compared to fifty three million that they gave to McCain, forty two million for Romney, which really highlights kind of this schism uh, in the Republican Party with the candidate. So, with all that said, I'm kind of curious what uh, our panel here thinks. A, I mean, I guess does this show that advertising is more important than maybe Trump thought it was? Or is his spending really less about acknowledging the importance of advertising than just kind of damage control from a lot of the negative stories that have been coming out about him? Uh, Christina, what do you think? Um, I I think it is uh, largely on his part a, a damage control um, effort. And I also think that Clinton's camp, when it comes to her ads, they're really innovative and fun and they kind of serve as this way um this like way for clinton to not be so stiff um like her her ads are kind of they kind of run counter to what you think of clinton as a as a politician because you know they are doing these sort of like interesting fun things and they're getting to you in the places that you actually want to see them and I think, I also think that that's part of the reason that spending is down because, you know, both of these people have huge social followings and, you know, they can just post an ad on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and those things go viral. Now, of course, they have like paid social behind that at times, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting election for that. Do you think that uh, Trump was unwise to kind of skimp on advertising early on, or do you think it really would have made much of a difference at this point? I don't know if it would have made that much of a difference. I feel like, you know, the viral, the social component is huge, too. I mean, he just tweets random nonsense and his supporters seem to like it. Um, by the way, what is Trump? What do Trump's ads even look like? I don't know. I haven't seen anything that's like super creative, unlike Clinton's ads, which are, and they do kind of you know, give her that approachability factor. I don't even know what Trump's ads look like, his TV ads. Trump's are ad they just atta attack ads on Clinton? I don't. Yeah, they are. I mean, they, they fit more in the traditional vein of, you know, Clinton's attack ads feel a little more modern in the sense that they are kind of this pop culture-y, um, uh, maybe having a little bit of fun while po pointing out some of the more dire kind of, con you know, potential consequences of, of what he's saying. His are more, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton called... Trump supporters deplorables, and that's deplorable. You know, so it's it's a little more like the kind of uh, talking points he has during his debate. They're they're a little, little more meat and potatoes, I'd say, than than her approach. Uh, Tim, what, do you feel that this election is going to change things moving forward? That it seems like Clinton, in a way, in terms of media spend, is is running a kind of a normal campaign. Uh, Trump obviously has spent a lot less. What do you think are going to be the takeaways for campaigns moving forward? Well, you know, I think uh, I, th I think that in some ways this campaign has been typical in in a certain sense. In that, I, I think advertising probably doesn't matter quite as much in presidential campaigns as it does in 
say local campaigns or statewide campaigns, uh, because you know most people are fairly plugged in to the difference between the presidential candidates. They're exposed to that a lot more, uh, whereas they may not know as much about local politicians. So. Uh, you could argue that 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 dynamic is even more pronounced this year. Uh, you know, you really have to be kind of living under a rock not to know what what Trump and Clinton are up to. Um, you know, but it is curious. Trump's Trump's model uh, advertising model has been really erratic, going all the way back to you know uh, the spring. He didn't he didn't run any ads at all in June and July, and I think Hillary Clinton ran like fifty million dollars of ads in the, in those two months. He sort of finally picked up the baton in, in August, but then he went quiet for a few weeks. So, you know, it's hard to tell. Like, the Trump campaign doesn't talk about its ad strategy, so we just end up speculating as to what they're doing. Um, but I think it's pretty likely that he thinks political advertising is is kind of part of the infrastructure that he's positioned against. And if you look at his his Twitter, if you look at his speeches, he, he tends to go with his gut across the board with his messaging. And, you know, a lot of it's so impromptu. And I, I think it's, pro- it's not a stretch to think that he's probably pretty dismissive of polished political ads. But having said that, I mean, ads work, particularly with undecided voters. So um, I think probably what they're doing now is kind of scrambling. I mean, he's, he's mismanaged the campaign pretty much across the board. And I think the advertising piece of that is has been mismanaged as well. I mean, it, you know, the fact that he's overpaying now uh, for, for buying late, that just tells me that he's disorganized, not that he has some sort of strategic late surge happening. Yeah, I, I think if if it had been an issue of kind of a surprise battleground state, you know, maybe a, a, a point of, you know, that no one had seen coming, but he's really kind of coming into states that are traditionally battleground states that are very clearly have always uh, in this election, everyone's known they were going to be, uh, you know, you know, you're going to fight it in Florida. You know, you're going to be on the ground, you know, with a full court press there. And so uh, probably a bit short sighted. And in the end, as you mentioned, Hillary had a two month head start on these battleground state ad campaigns. That's a man. two months of heavy ad spending is a really good foundation to lay in a battleground state versus having to come in at the last minute. So, yeah, totally. And, and you know, the other thing that's notable, too, is that it's it's so easy for Hillary to make an attack ad that doesn't look like an attack ad. It just looks like she's standing up for basic human decency. You know, like Trump does so much stuff that's easy to just, I mean, all these ads about um, his womanizing and his sexual assault bragging. I mean, those those are so easy to make. You just bring in people who are, who, who are opposed to sexual assault. I mean, that's everybody, <laughs> you know? So, but at the same time, Hillary has had some, you know, some, some harsher ads. Uh, you know, she's used children a few times in advertising, which is always a little bit iffy. You know, it kind of borders on propaganda a little bit. But when you, you know, when you show Trump's words and children listening to Trump's words, I mean, that's just a a slam dunk creative approach. Um, And I think she's done really well with it. Christina, what do you think was the impact of the, if any, of the feature that Hillary's website added where they could compare the timeline, you know, randomly kind of pull up a date and see what she had been doing in her past versus what Trump had been doing in her past? How effective was that? It seemed like a really fresh approach to this kind of, you know, soft attack, uh, but one that was really compelling. Uh, What did you think of that? Well, I th- I think that's yet another example of Clinton's digital team understanding a younger audience, which is probably who they're trying to reach uh, with with that effort, because 
it, it gave you, as I, I think um, Chris Heine wrote for us, it gave you this sort of like BuzzFeed-esque uh, scroll where you were able to just kind of like check out what was what. Um, and it's also, you know, much of Trump's argument against Clinton is that she's uh, a, a long-term politician. She's been doing this for so long that she's part of the establishment. And it's sort of this nod to, yeah, she has been doing this for a long time, which is why she knows to buy ads early in those states and why she's able to, um, you know, point to this history that she has on her on her site in this timeline. It's I, I don't know. It's pretty smart, I think. All right. Well, uh, we are going to move on. I'm sure this uh, will only heat up uh, between now and the next time we record this podcast. The next few weeks are going to be uh, full on crazy on this election cycle. So on the one hand, I think all of us want to just go to sleep and wake up and have it be over. Uh, On the other, it's going to be a pretty fascinating few weeks. So uh, we will see what what happens on that front. And we will, I'm sure, be talking about it every week for the next few weeks. In other news that has blessedly nothing to do with the presidential campaign, this week Wyden and Kennedy, uh, one of the best-known agencies in the world, restructured its leadership, uh, kind of moved its board of partners uh, around, especially uh, added quite a bit. Uh, So they expanded their group of partners from 9 to 24, uh, which is a huge uh, increase in in size and scope of of their stakeholder pool. Normally, uh, that kind of leadership change isn't too sexy, but uh, Wyden Kennedy is always a fascinating agency. This is, of course, the agency that does Nike and Old Spice, uh, and they are really generally recognized uh, as one of the best agencies in the world. And it was fascinating to see the thinking that went into this is really creating a framework for their strategic growth around the globe. Uh, if you look at who they added, uh, of course, they, they added the global creative director on, the, for the, on their Nike account. That makes a lot of sense. But they also added their Sao Paulo managing director, their director of emerging markets, their New York managing director, two of their Amsterdam uh, executive creative directors. So it, they are very clearly positioning themselves for a, a more strategic approach to growing around the globe. Tim, you've been following Wyden and Kennedy for ages. I feel like I generally think of them as you know, that one of two offices, you know, you've got Wyden in Portland, uh, best known for their Nike work and Old Spice. Then you've got Wyden in London uh, that's known for a lot of their Honda work that's always an award winner. Do you see this being kind of the stepping stone for Wyden having an even larger, more offices, uh, having a larger uh, kind of reputation in the industry? I think so. I think this move is really about um, trying to spread the wealth around beyond Portland and London, which have been sort of the you know, the power centers of this agency. Uh, You know, they're an independent agency, which means they can organize however they like. um, And the way they've organized in their 35-year history so far is to have, you know, a very small group of partners kind of uh, with a financial incentive and everyone else just makes their normal salary. So what this does is it takes that group of of nine people, expands it to 24, gives a whole lot more people uh, the financial incentive to do well, to have their offices do well, around the world. And that's a big change. You know, they're even calling them stakeholders, which is kind of a funny word for a, for a, an, an independent agency that doesn't have, uh, it's not public. Um, they're not actually legally uh, stakeholders or shareholders or whatever you want to call them, but um, they are now financially incentivized. So if they do well, if their offices do well, um, they're going to share in, in the monetary rewards, which, you know, it, it should strengthen their offices uh, around the world. I, I think it'll help, uh, retain those people that 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 obviously uh widen believes 
uh, or the next generation of leadership. Um, Dave Lohr and Colleen DeCourcy, who uh, Dave is the global president of Wyden and Colleen is, is the uh, global chief creative officer. They were the ones who sort of announced this change this week. So, you know, it's not even coming from Dan Wyden, who's now, you know, he's really stepped back quite a bit uh, in the role of chairman. And so uh, Dave and Colleen are really spearheading this change. And it really, you know, it, it gives the equity to a lot more people. And what that does in theory is to is to strengthen the bonds uh, of the next generation of leaders. So we'll see if that happens. Uh, it's a big agency. I mean, it's 1,500 people around the world. And, and only having, not, you know, only having nine people um, sharing that wealth of, of what the of the profits the company made was a little strange. So, um, you know, maybe people will, uh, these, these 24 people, um, now have a real incentive not to go somewhere else, you know, not to start their own companies and, and they, they can be part of an, an equity program, you know, at the agency they're at now. And that's a big, you know, that's a big difference in a lot of people, people's careers when you're, you know, as talented as these guys are to lead, uh, certain disciplines and certain offices of widening Kennedy. So, um, you know, they're calling it self-ownership, expanding self-ownership, and uh, it's definitely an interesting model. Uh, they're, they're also calling it the ship of fools, so they haven't given up, given up on their sense of humor, even in restructuring uh, financially. Um, but it's definitely, a, a, you know, it's a plan for the next generation, and yeah, we'll see how it, see how it goes for them. Christine Berkner, do you think they are wise to focus on Tokyo, Shanghai, Delhi, uh, these kind of markets as big growth areas? Uh, do you see brands and agencies looking to, to those regions for growth? Uh, definitely. I mean, I feel like that's that is, and those are all emerging markets. I don't know about Tokyo as much, but definitely you want to be in China and India. Um, there's such, I mean, the population alone there is amazing, and you've heard a lot about growth in both places. So yeah, I think they're smart to to invest there. I, I feel like with Tokyo, uh, what's fascinating to me about that is that we've seen in recent years a bit of a westernization um, of, of Japanese advertising. Japanese advertising is, you know, world famous, but it's also world famously weird. And weird in a different way than maybe a widen uh, is weird for Old Spice, uh, almost inscrutable to Western audiences. And we've seen in the last year or so, uh, you know, you've got uh, Droga 5 uh, doing work for Uniqlo, and, and you're just seeing a little more Western style, what I think of as more traditional advertising. I, I would say the uh, the Shiseido uh, gender, uh, kind of mixed gender uh, ad that won a ton of awards last year, that was another, uh, even though it was very Japanese, it was also kind of felt more in the vein of the kind of advertising we cover. So I'll be curious to see what kind of impact uh, Wyden and other agencies have in that market. Uh, Wyden recently won Chobani, uh, which is probably their biggest account win of note in, in the last few months. Uh, so it'll be curious to see uh, where they go from here. So that's it for news. Uh, wanted to save plenty of time to talk about ads worth watching. This is my favorite section of the week. This is where we ask Tim, as our creative editor, to pull together some of the, the best commercials that are actually worth taking time out of your life to go and watch. Tim, what ads were worth watching this week? So, David, I'm afraid we're, we have to go back to politics uh, for a little bit. This is the first ad I want to talk about is uh, it's a spot from a Toronto agency called The Garden. And what they did was they got a bunch of Canadians together to go on camera and uh, basically tell America that we're, we're already great. Uh, which is, of course, a reference to the Trump campaign's Make America Great Again spot. So all these Canadians saying, you know, we have wonderful national parks. We're really generous with our philanthropy. We have awesome musicians and so on and so on. And it's a pretty it's pretty charming ad. It's sort of gone viral. Uh, and it's it's you know, it could be seen as anti-Trump in a way. Um, but I think 
Um, the notable aspect of this ad is is that you know our election, as we've been talking about, has become so stressful and weird um, that we need Canada to give us a hug, which is kind of odd. Um, so that's sort of got to be a first, I would imagine. Uh, and you know, the funny thing too is that Canada has kind of played this unspoken role um, throughout the election. Uh, so a lot of ads have actually. Um, use this theme of of come to Canada if if the wrong person gets elected. Uh, you know, eSurance uh, did that just uh, I think last week, and they I think there's been like a dozen or more sort of major to minor campaigns joking about that. So it's funny Canada is is you know playing a funny role in this election. Um, so I guess we could we should listen to a little bit of it because it, it is a charming spot. So let's listen to a brief clip from it right here. What's up, America? Hey, guys. We're just up here in Canada talking about how great you guys are down there. We thought we'd just send you a little bit of a love note. We're big fans. We like you guys. We know you've got some really big decisions to make. But as you're thinking about your future, we just want you to know that... You guys are great. You really are great. You invented the internet. You guys are going to get humanity to Mars. Stay great, America. So as you can tell, uh, it's heartfelt and charming and amusing, and um, I think it's all based around this this idea that you know at, at no time has has the calmness of Canada seemed so attractive to us Americans. Did you guys uh, like the spot? What did you think of it? Um, I thought that you know it's it's one of those things where you need positivity in your life, and you need positivity. Uh, about this campaign or about like the prospect of uh, America being okay when like every single week John Oliver has to reference 2016 being the dumpster fire of a year that it is also side note there was a great Twitter joke where someone was like stop referring it to it as a dumpster fire because dumpster dumpster fires keep people warm so they're great <laughs> um but it's like, I don't know. I, I think I think you're kind of right in saying that uh, a hug feels good and America needed a hug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the perfect, you're right about the positivity aspect too because it's advertising in general has become so much more sort of empowering, uplifting and positive over the last five years. And uh, it's hard to find a lot of that in this election. So this agency certainly did. And, you know, it wasn't a, a, a client thing. It was just an agency doing this on their own, which and it's it's definitely struck a nerve. People people are loving it, it seems like. It, it, it's also worth saying that I, I got so tired of the uh, come to Canada if the election goes wrong advertising. There's been so much of that. So it was nice to have the Canadians actually weigh in and, and not saying come and live here, but saying you guys are great. You should stay there. Well, yeah, the Canada thing is lazy. Like, it's just, it's tired. Yeah, the, totally. The, the move to Canada, yeah. Uh, well, what else? Uh, you got any more uh, political stuff in the advertising vein there, Tim? I do, I do. So there are these anti-Trump billboards um, from a super PAC called the Nuisance Committee, which is a great name, first of all. And the Nuisance Committee was created by uh, Cards Against Humanity, and Cards Against Humanity, we've written a lot about them. It's the the card game uh, that it's just a fantastic. And those guys are really savvy marketers. So they got together and decided that they wanted to create an, an anti-Trump campaign. And it's really been one of the most uh, creatively amusing and fun campaigns that we've seen this year. Uh, so a few months ago, they put up a billboard in Chicago 
maybe it was about a month ago that, that it just said uh, in giant block letters, if Trump, if Trump is so rich, how come he didn't buy this billboard? Which was sort of, you know, you, you sort of stop for a second, but it was, it was a pretty funny, pretty funny ad. And it led to a, a website called Trump doesn't pay taxes.com. And, and the website went into great detail about Trump's business record and why those supporting him who think he's a great businessman should really, should really check that record. So then a week ago, uh, a, a, another billboard went up in Florida, and the headline was, Donald Trump mains Hanzo and complains about Team Comp in chat, which seems like a foreign language to probably most of our listeners, but it's, it's based on a video game, and the gamers really understood it immediately, and it, and it led to a uh, website called trumpisnotateamplayer.com, which sort of questioned his temperament and his claims to be collaborative and an, an easy person to work with. And now just, I believe it was this morning or yesterday, uh, a billboard went up in Michigan with, with a headline that was written uh, completely in Arabic. And, and tra it translates to Donald Trump can't read this, but he is afraid of it. And the, the website there was trumpisscared.org. And if you went there, it questioned, uh, the whole site questioned Trump's um, bigoted views on immigrants and foreigners. So all these ads are, every every execution's been super creative and interesting, and their, their PR uh, sort of masterpieces, they're getting shared all over the place. They're sort of single... Uh, single billboards. They're not, you know, campaigns uh, all over the all over the country. I think these are just three distinct billboards, obviously created to get media attention. Uh, brilliantly done in that regard. And then, you know, they're not just jokes either. Over on the websites, there's lots of useful information, and it's and it's not as exhibitionist as the ads themselves. So, I love this campaign. You know, it's a great use of outdoor. It's a great way to get people's attention and and the media's attention, uh, and it also pay, it gets paid off by giving you the facts. Also, 2016, the year of the like creative billboard. It's great. Totally. Keep, keep making weird billboards. <laughs> the totally. uh, uh, the video game reference is to Overwatch, which I'm not an avid player of, but it is definitely one of the hottest games of the year. Kind of been one of those, uh, you know, big big games uh, that will everyone will be playing for years to come. It's got a lot of those legs, but it also has this very passionate community. And I thought this was a great example of leveraging a community that you know is already tremendously active online, but might not necessarily be politically aligned with any one candidate. Like, I don't think you would say that hardcore gamers are necessarily super pro-Hillary or pro-Trump. Uh, so that was a really interesting kind of niche audience to leverage, knowing that if you buy, and we talked about this a lot in our coverage, that Sometimes the key to a viral success is just one good outdoor buy. Uh, you know, if you can get the right billboard, the right placement, the right subway stop, uh, you can get millions of dollars worth of visibility for you know a few hundred bucks. So, a great campaign. Totally. Uh, so, and there was also one more ad I want to talk about. Not not as political, although it does have a political uh, element to it. It's this uh, ad animated film by DDB New York for the Wildlife uh, Conservation Film Festival. And I really love this ad. It's it's uh, about a, a three minute long spot, and it shows it's it's done in stop motion animation, and it's got a a, a wildlife conservation message. It shows all these uh, animals uh, sort of frolicking in the wild, and they're actually singing uh, "I Dreamed a Dream," the song from Les Mis, which uh, Les Mis fans will will love. And uh, about halfway through, uh, humans come in and kind of basically wreck their environment, and, and it's the, the animation's lovely. The message is really sort of heartfelt. Um, it, it sort of reminded me of the, the animation style that that uh, the Scarecrow, uh, the Chipotle ad from a, f a few years back. It's it's that kind of style. It's really beautiful. 
Um, pr the production company on this one was called Zombie Studio. And uh, like I said, D2B New York uh, was, the, was the agency behind this one. And if you guys haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, really lovely singing, and uh, it, it might be a little overwrought, probably. I'm not sure it's going to uh, convince anyone who's not already a, a fan of, of wildlife uh, to convince them to sort of jump ship, but um, a, a lovely piece of art nonetheless, I would say. Let's listen to a little bit of the music. Then I was young and unafraid And dreams were made and used and wasted But the tigers come at night With their voices soft as thunder They tear your old bones As they turn your dream to shame I really thought that was kind of a, a perfect song choice, uh, you know, especially if you're familiar with the play. You know, it's got it's such a beautiful but also kind of haunting song because it's about you know what could have been versus the the darkness of what is um and uh so so it was one where at first i i remember thinking like that's a that's a weird choice uh but but in the end like really kind of a perfect uh song selection yeah and, and you know the wildlife conservation film festival is going on uh this week i believe it goes through october 23rd in new york so check it out and buy buy uh, you can buy a whole festival pass or you can get individual tickets and it sounds like a pretty interesting program. Again, so much cool animation going on. Do yeah, it's true, right? It. Keep doing yeah. it. Not a, not so much a dumpster fire year as a year of great creative outdoor and animation. Yeah, <laughs> says Adrian Christina Mamas. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Tim. As always, uh, great to hear your wrap-ups. Uh, always a highlight of the podcast. We're going to move on to our big discussion of the week. This week's uh, big conversation is around branding, marketing, retail specifically, all because this week is one of the year's major events for marketers. It's the a and Masters of Marketing. Uh, Christine and Christina, I believe you are both going down, uh, correct? Yes. Yep. And so wanted to grab you guys before you uh, left town and just kind of ask uh, about, we're going to have coverage of it all week on adweek.com, uh, but it's also the highlight of our print issue this week, uh, especially our cover story, uh, which Christine wrote. Uh, it is a profile of Jet.com's Liza Landsman. Am I pronouncing that right? Yep, that's right. And she is the chief customer officer of Jet.com, a e-commerce player that a lot of people feel is kind of has the best hopes of becoming, if not the next Amazon, at least a a strong number two, uh, which we've really never had. They recently purchased by Walmart, uh, which has given them, I'm sure, a nice infusion of capital. Uh, Christine, what did you learn about this going into it? Were you already pretty familiar with Jet, or did you kind of have to learn from I, scratch? I had to learn. Um, I actually wasn't that familiar with Jet. Um, I yeah, I heard about it when uh, Walmart bought it back in either July or August, so I wasn't super familiar with Jet. But um, yeah, they're they're trying to kind of 
I mean, they they know that they're not going to unseat Amazon next year, but with the Walmart acquisition, it kind of gives them a little more power to be a challenger to Amazon in some ways. So tell us about what what does Jet have that Amazon does not? Um, so what they have is a uh, kind of a gamified shopping experience. So if you buy a certain combination of items together, or if you use a debit card instead of a credit card, or if you uh, forego free returns, you save money. So that's, and you can kind of see when you're doing that, it shows you on the site that you're saving however much money by doing so. Um, and it's not a ton of money. I actually tested it out. It's like 75 cents in some cases, but it's still sort of their selling point is that they try to make shopping a little more fun by adding this gamified sort of experience where you're saving money by doing certain things. I, I've used Jet a few times. I think what I've liked about it, and I think this came up in your story too, is is they talk, I think she talks about the fact that uh, we've moved away from searching for shopping to now we just go to Amazon and we just look for what we're trying to buy. In the times when I've needed a very specific item uh, and I've I've done like the Google product search or I've looked at, you know, in the shopping uh, area, uh, Jet often has the best price. And it seems like they don't necessarily have so much this unlimited, you know, massive sprawling amount of inventory so much as just a well-curated selection of the stuff you might actually want. Yeah, and she did mention that too. She said that's one of their main um, sort of selling points is that they try to, um, yeah, create a, like a curated list of products that people want. Nothing, nothing too crazy. So, Christina or Tim, have either of you used Jet.com? No, I don't I have, buy things online. I have not used it either, um, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, I mean, and I think the experience too was a little uh, was a little more streamlined, a little less annoying. I felt like I was kind of in and out. It's like that good shopping experience where you know what you need and you don't want to be hassled by like a weird store layout or by being upsold or whatever. Um, I just remember feeling it's been a while since I bought stuff on there, but it felt like a very kind of smooth uh, process uh, compared to the kind of sometimes the clunkiness of Amazon. Uh, but tell us uh, what she kind of has in mind, uh, Liza Lansman, as chief customer officer. What all does her role in tail and where does she really see jet.com going christine yeah she so she oversees marketing branding and analytics for jet um and she does see you know jet um she's kind of building a brand for jet where shopping is more fun their audience their target audience is millennials but also baby boomers at slightly over indexes on millennials, baby boomers, and the urban market. So they're looking to have a little bit of personality as well. Um, they did some ads for the Super Bowl where they uh, they marketed the Super Bowls, the actual bowls you can get on Jet.com. So they're trying to kind of create a personality, a place that's fun, a place that you know people will want to shop. Yeah, you know, I think SS, SS&K did some interesting live live commercials uh, with jet.com too, which were kind of cool. Oh, they, they, cool. I, think, I didn't see those, but yeah, I think they did like 50 of them in, in a single day where they, they took suggestions from people online. And oh, they... wait, were those the, um, the ones with what's his face and what's his face from their, <laughs> their comedy central show? Um, Tim and Eric. Uh, no, not Tim and Eric. Key um, and Peele. No, I Key don't think Peele. so. No, I think that was different, but. Oh wait, no, that was Squarespace. Sorry. You know, also, it must be pretty intimidating for any company to go up against Amazon, too. Like, Amazon Definitely. is such a behemoth. And, like, I, I use Amazon because I, I have the Prime membership, and that gets you, like, all of the free music and, and TV shows. 
you know like they have for for the amazon's such a savvy media player um that if you're just talking e-commerce and you just want to buy something online there's probably not much of a difference between jet.com and they could probably compete on price with amazon but amazon has its tentacles all over everything and the people that it the people that it's sort of roped in will have a hard time leaving i think yeah, and that's kind of a, a, one of the points that one of the forestry analysts met, made. He said that, um, you know, if you have a Prime membership, you're not going to, and you're just buying soap, you're not going to go to Jet.com right. to get soap. Exactly. Um, you know, you might shop around for a TV or something like that. But um, Amazon's gotten to the point where people just go directly to Amazon and buy everything. Um, so uh, there was a stat from Mintel that said 23% of U.S. consumers do all of their shopping on Amazon. So, And I think Liza Lansman, she was aware of the fact that, you know, this isn't going to happen a year, two, three from now. You know, she's like, they've only, Jet.com's only been around for a year, actually. So, um, you know, she knows that this is a long-term kind of play. It just—it's such a dangerous industry to try to get into. I mean, you're talking such incredibly low margins to begin with, and then Amazon really kind of eroded those margins down to almost uh, by making free shipping uh, table stakes. You know, they really made it almost impossible for anyone to turn a profit, including Amazon. I mean, I think they are probably not making much, if any, profit off their actual. Uh, e-commerce side. And so that's what fascinates me about Jet is that they are really focusing on the one area where I feel like Amazon has kind of drifted away, which is the the core shopping experience. And as, to Tim's point, Amazon's largely become a a media, a, you know, a, a streaming player, a digital player. It's 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 interwoven. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon's biggest business is the uh, Amazon web services, you know, the the hosting that they do for pretty much uh, you know, a mm-hmm. massive chunk of the internet. Uh, so maybe that's an opportunity that they're moving away from it, but part of me has always wondered if if Amazon just is looking for areas that actually have profit uh, versus this kind of but hey, if you're going to partner with somebody for these kind of uh, you know, real small margins, it should probably be Walmart cuz you know, they've managed to build an entire industry around that. Uh, just, it, I just hope Walmart doesn't start making TV shows. That, oh, God. That would oh, my be, gosh. That would be horrifying. Uh, Christine, any other insights you gleaned from from your interview with uh, Liza? No, I mean, I think it's interesting, and I think it'll be interesting to see to see what happens. Um, you know, like, I mean, one of the analysts I talked to also said that if anyone can – uh, challenge Amazon, it'll be a Walmart, Jet.com combination. So, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think what they're doing is uh, is interesting, and it'll be it'll be cool to see what happens with them. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about your cover story. Uh, be sure if if uh, if you're listening to this and you've got access to Adweek Print Edition, be sure to check it out. It is a, a great package. It's also online at adweek.com. Uh, my other favorite story that was in this week's uh, brand and retail issue was about uh, the shifting gender norms, uh, written by Christina Monlis. So, Christina, tell us the kind of the the theme of your article. That's such a massive topic that you tackled. I thought you did it in a really uh, impressive way. Uh, but kind of tell us about the specific angle that you wanted to pursue? Oh, sure. Um, so basically what I wanted to show is like, even even if it's happening only for like a couple of brands or, you know, in a couple different instances of their marketing, to, sh- to kind of show that like, there's a recognition that um, in culture in general, uh, younger people when it comes to gender are much more accepting of this whole spectrum of, um, you know, the way that people identify and marketers are trying to figure out how to talk about that 
and if they should talk about that, and then what they should do with their products, and if they should do anything with them. Um, and it, it was just sort of uh, to, to kind of give like a little explainer of what has been happening and then how it's been happening. I, I, I don't think this is something you're going to see every marketer run out and do. It doesn't necessarily make sense for most, but, you know, there's, there's something powerful about recognition. You know, what CoverGirl is doing with having their first cover boy, um, it makes a lot of sense if you have been watching the beauty world and watching what's been going on. And, you know, he uses makeup. Uh, there are plenty of people who don't necessarily identify as a cisgender woman um, that use makeup. And to represent that in your advertising is powerful. Yeah, well, one of my favorite points that you made in the story was about how it's becoming less about, you know, targeting your advertising based on gender than it is about your body type, your hair type, your personality type, that all these things are a little more universal and, and rather than getting bogged down in it, whether it's for this half of the population or the other half of the population. Well, it's a lot smarter. And it's also like when you're leaning on a gender stereotype um, at a time when you have all of this data, when you can target in the way that you can, when you can, when you can go after someone based on the kind of hair care that they would use or the kind of style that they have or, you know, the... There, all of these different personality traits, it, it, it can come across as really lazy. And I think that's where, that's like the fine line that you have to walk where, you know, you don't want to be too specific. You don't want to have, um, I don't know, some ad where like Meryl Streep is talking directly to someone and like listing all of their like character traits and saying like, hello, I know you want this product. But there is there is a way to address people that isn't based on like, oh, hi, you have these body parts and, you know, that means that you are this kind of person and here you are. It's more just about like, you know, you seem to have this kind of style and if you have that style, then maybe you would appreciate this. So, so what are some brands that you see are kind of leading in this space and in this conversation? Well, I mean, obviously Target with removing their signs and, you know, um, removing the signs, the gendered signs in uh, their toy section and their as well as their home and entertainment sections. Um, and also CoverGirl um, and Zara, Selfridge and Guess have all had, um, you know, gender neutral clothing lines. Now, those haven't necessarily been all that well received because often as where as brands are like starting to explore this space the idea of being neutral often means being gray or drab and like that that's that's not great um I, yeah i feel like you and i've been talking about this for for almost over a year this idea of can you be gender neutral without being just really boring because the palettes are always super neutral they're, they're gray they're really light tans the you know the the cut of the fabrics on clothing is always really just kind of you know peasant tunicky <laughs> i mean just like not, nothing i do you think though that, that that we'll get there that we'll get to the point where you can have gender neutral fashion without it being looking like some kind of you know 
Soviet era Eastern German uniform. Yeah, I think I think what's happening right now is that like there's too there's too much thinking that's gone into like what you know what people would want and that's not to say like people shouldn't be thinking about design obviously they should but more that like women go to the men's section I'm one of them and will buy a shirt because they like the way that fits better um you know men will go to the women's section and buy certain things because they like them and because they like the styles or or whatever it is and you know it's less about trying to get rid of all the personality that is in both of those arenas and more about figuring out what the best way is to um represent that as something that anyone could want to purchase. There's something to be said for the more subtle ways that marketers can address kind of these gender stereotypes and gender imbalances. And one of my favorite was actually, I think, was from September of last year. Anheuser-Busch has this kind of odd, unbranded campaign called We Love Beer. I'm sure it's just, you know, kind of this larger effort to get people drinking beer. This year, they had some stuff around the Olympics. Uh, But in September, they did a very different thing. They did this kind of stunt where they had hidden cameras uh, showing that when a guy and a woman are out together and the guy orders a cocktail and the woman orders a beer, the server will inevitably bring them the wrong one. Uh, and, And because of just this long-standing idea that guys drink beer and women drink cocktails. Uh, and and so Anheuser-Busch was basically trying to point out that that's a changing behavior that uh, restaurants and servers and people have kind of been slow to recognize. Um, and of course, their goal is pushing beer as a gender-neutral drink that they want everyone to do. But I think there's also a certain brilliance in that uh, compared to necessarily saying like, we're going to come out with, like, we're going to change the entire branding of a specific beer to appeal better to, to both genders. I kind of liked this that idea of, of tackling gender without necessarily trying to strip away or add it where it didn't make sense. Yeah, you know, the the Axe campaign and how it is rethinking uh, masculinity too, those kinds of things where, you know, they really question uh, the stereotypes and kind of try to break down some of the stereotypes. I think that can be great for society as a whole. Well, Um, yeah, it's about having that conversation be part of everything it's not necessarily about being like hey yes you like we we recognize that like you know you don't like masculine things or or you don't identify as masculine and so your this product isn't for you it's more about like showing that it can be for anyone which is exactly what that axe campaign was doing i mean there's a there's a bit in there where um someone is is a guy is dancing in heels well thank you uh especially christina for taking time to talk about your piece uh for those who've not read it definitely go to adweek.com and check out uh christina's piece on how uh gender i'm trying to remember off the top of my head do you know the headline to help people find it um sure i had to work chop this one with Ned, as we do with a lot of our headlines um (laughs) i I think it's uh uh Brands are I have, it. I have it. Brands are throwing out gender norms to reflect a more fluid world is the headline. Well, thank you both for discussing that and we're going to 
talk a little more specifically. I mentioned this in passing, uh, but the ANA Masters of Marketing Conference going on this week. Uh, again, this is a huge gathering of a lot of the biggest brands uh, from all over the, the country, from all over the world. And uh, Christine and Christina are both going to be there. And so I wanted to kind of pick your brains. Christine, what do you expect to be kind of the big trends, uh, the big topics that marketers are discussing this year? Uh, well, one of them, I mean, a lot of big CMOs are speaking at the conference, uh, P&G, McDonald's, uh, WWE is going to be there, Mattel, which has, um, you know, had a big success with Barbie. Um, I don't know. The one theme uh, presentation that I've seen is uh, ANA has a new initiative that they're doing with a few uh, large corporations, uh, Best Buy and Unilever, um, on you know, trying to um, have better representation for women in advertising. So that's probably one of the issues that'll be talked about. Yeah. So this has been a big push lately on from the client side is brands basically saying that they expect and demand that their agencies have a commitment to diversity, that they set goals for diversity, both in terms of gender balance, ethnicity. Uh, and, and so how do you, do you feel like that, that, uh, you know, it was a few specific brands that really started this ball rolling. And do you feel like it's really going to be this going to be the year that that cascades down to uh, becoming kind of a standard aspect of the client relationship? I mean, probably. Yeah. Or maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I mean, I feel like this has been talked about for a while and maybe this will make it a bigger issue. Not sure. Well, this has been a really embarrassing year for the agency world, too. I mean, we've had yeah. multiple agency CEOs fired. I couldn't tell you. I'm sure it's happened, but I can't name any brand CEOs or CMOs that have been fired for being sexist. But we've had quite a few agency people. Uh, and so I, I do feel like the clients, at least for now, are in a better moral standing to demand this kind of stuff than, than maybe they have been in the past. Uh, uh, Christina, what topics do you think are going to be hot this year at a and um, well, I, I think to Christine's point, um, that that's something that is going to be on the mind of every CMO. I'm hoping that in like my wildest dreams, it would be the best if any of these CMOs were like, oh, hey, also we have a report with numbers of how many, uh, how, how, how diverse these agencies are. And here's a look. That would be my favorite thing to happen. Um, well, it's not like the brands are all that much more diverse. I mean, I think this is no, a, but, not. but give me yeah. numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Let me actually see if we're going to have this conversation. I want to have a conversation where we're actually looking at the numbers for, for them, um, for themselves as brands, not just as not just the agents. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Let's like, if you're going to argue for transparency, which, uh, you know, some of these marketers have, then like be transparent yourselves. So one brand uh, that won't be presenting this year is Samsung. What what happened there, Christina? Oh, um they canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They they were they were like we, you know, obviously we're having a tough time and instead of addressing this in an hour-long ANA session, we're just going to quietly disappear. Which like I get it. You're not necessarily going to be like, "Oh, hey, <laughs> shit's crazy for us right now we're actually going to discuss how we're going to fix that with our marketing but instead, i think it would be cool if they did though it'd be so cool it'd be yeah. like again it'd be, it'd be brave streams. and awesome they should do it but yeah. they won't 
So yeah. I think it was BBDO's session in Cannes that was like how to fail horribly at everything. They could have just snagged that. They could have just snagged that title <laughs> and, and put it on their own. Yeah, and wasn't that the one yep. where BBDO had to had to kick it off with their own apology? Yes. Yeah, for, they did. Yeah, for the scam work. Yeah, exactly. It's so good. So going into a and I'm always curious, who are like the superstar brands? Who are the ones that every other brand, you know, they're either like secretly handing them their business cards, be like, let me know if you ever need help. Or, you know, it's like the ones that they just, every other brand looks up to. Uh, Christine, who would you say are those kind of superstar brands right now? Oh, that's tough. WWE is pretty good. I mean, Mattel might be good. Bar- I'm just looking at the speaker list. Um, possibly... Shake Shack's gaining traction. Yeah. Um, they're kind of cool. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that like no one's really going to go up to USPS. But exactly. And be like, hey. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go to their to their presentation <laughs> just to see what they're up to and see how they're trying to compete with the you know now that mail is dying. But yeah, other than that, I don't know. I don't know. Mastercard. Yeah. Well, I feel Mastercard. like it, like in terms of the the brands I always think of these days is just kind of every other brand just admires their standing, uh, you know, within their category. It, Amex, uh, Delta, uh, y- the uh, Netflix, I think, is one that everyone just really tremendously admires how Netflix has been able to to build and cultivate and, and maintain a brand. Uh, it, it's just always interesting because that list changes dramatically every year. And to your point, WWE, it felt like a year or two ago I would have said UFC, and I really wouldn't have been thinking about WWE, and now they're everywhere. And I mean, uh, Stephanie McMahon uh, is is everywhere, and and you know, it's just one of those things. And so it's always fascinating to see year to year who are the. Do you think that's because of John Cena? John Cena, like, uh, I mean, I think he's a huge part of it. I think he's a he is their big star face and and voice but no i mean i think it's more about they've kind of learned from some of the lessons of ufc without kind of straying too far from their own brand uh, but it's a good question i mean we we've covered them a lot a lot a lot and uh it, it's fascinating just seeing what has gotten wwe to this moment um maybe we will have to tackle that some other day I mean, it's a really interesting topic um well Good luck uh, at the conference this week to both of you. Uh, I will be keeping a close eye on adweek.com, as should everyone listening to this. Uh, we will be uh, fascinated to see what comes out of the a and Masters of Marketing. So thank you both uh, for weighing in. And uh, we do have an email account. You can drop us uh, some notes whenever you feel like. We are at podcast at adweek.com. A-D-W-E-E-K. We love hearing what you have to say. If you have any thoughts or questions about the podcast or topics you'd like us to discuss, we actually have gotten several on a very similar theme, and these are from different people. Uh, But they're all uh, have one singular point, which is that they would like us to feature failed uh, campaigns, failed strategies, and basically talk about why they failed. Uh, and why? Because we obviously tend to focus on ones that worked uh, and that were very effective. Because those tend to so ads not worth watching. Should we do that. <laughs> <laughs> ads worth avoiding. Um, and so, uh, thank you to uh, everyone who wrote in with that as kind of a recurring theme. Uh, it is something I'm going to take to heart. Uh, 
the key thing is that we just tend to not really notice those because we try to only write about things that are going to break through to a certain level. Uh, 90% of advertising is pretty bad. And so it's it's hard to really focus on that versus spending your time mining the, the 10% that's good. But thank you for the feedback, and we will definitely keep an eye out for those. Uh, in terms of things going on on the site, on adweek.com, we've got our annual hot list voting where you can vote for your favorite brands, people, TV shows, just about everything in the categories of television, digital, and magazines. Uh, those are our three. So you can find a link right at the very top of adweek.com. So definitely go there and cast your vote. You can vote every day. And I'm sure that the brands and shows and personalities that you like would greatly appreciate that. And also next week is our brand genius issue. This is our annual list of the, the kind of the brightest minds in marketing. Uh, so we will be talking about that next week. It's always fun to see who makes that list. We're going to have a big gala celebration next week to, in New York to celebrate. And um, we will be talking all about that next week. So keep an eye out for that list when it goes live on on Monday. Our theme music is by Home, and this week's episode was edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please take a moment, if you enjoy this show, to leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews uh, mean a lot to us, and they help us reach new uh, audiences. So thank you for those who've done so, and if you haven't, please take a moment. I'm David Greiner with adweek.com, and we will see you, uh, actually, we will talk to you next week. Next week.